Hey, What is Truth listeners, are you like me where you just want to read some of the great Catholic spiritual classics but are a little intimidated and don't know where to start? Well, have no fear, Tan Books is here with their new podcast called The Commentaries. Don't just read the book, live the book with The Commentaries, where an expert guide every episode breaks down one of history's greatest Catholic works like The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis and The Interior Castle by Teresa of Avila. Check it out at tancommentaries.com. That's T-A-N commentaries.com. And if you decide to buy one of those great works from Tan Books, make sure to use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, at checkout to support the show. Thank you, guys. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome to What is Truth, a Catholic apologetics podcast that seeks to help others find the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. It is my prayer that through today's episode, the Holy Spirit would sanctify both you and I in the truth. Hi, What is Truth listeners, it's Nico Silva here, co-host and friend of Jack's from the two-parter Sabbath series from way back. It's been a while since I've been on the pod, but now I'm back for our three-part series on the Deuterocanon. Now, if that word already sounds jargony, don't worry. That's what this intro is for, to get you up to speed on the terminology and references that you need to understand by next week in order to get the next three parts of our series. We're going to be going back to our older schedule of a new episode every Tuesday in the month of July, so get excited. Okay. Now on to some definitions in context. First, let's start with this basic word, the canon of scripture. Now we're not talking about pirate ship cannons that go boom when you shoot them. We're talking about the technical term canon, which literally translates to rule. That is the rule or measure against which we determine our list of books in our Bible. Protestants have a 66 book canon that resembles modern rabbinical Judaism emphasis on modern and rabbinical Judaism as opposed to ancient cultic Judaism around the time of Christ and before that. Catholics, on the other hand, have a 73-book canon in our Bible. Now, let's get to that word, deuterocanon. It's the term that we Catholics prefer to describe the seven books that are in our Old Testament, but not in Protestant and Jewish Old Testaments. For Protestants, the preferred term for those same books is the Apocrypha, which literally means the hidden books, but also carries the negative connotation of being spurious, dubious, doubtfully inspired. Alternately, the term Deuterocanon roughly translates from its Greek roots to mean the second canon, or next to the canon, mostly because it's the disputed part of the canon in these modern Christian debates. The Deuterocanon includes the seven Old Testament books of Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and parts of Daniel and Esther. Next term I want you all to have a clear understanding of is Masoretic, or as a complete phrase, the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text is a particular version of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. It's 24 books long and notably does not include the Deuterocanonical books. It's 
a complete Hebrew copy of the Old Testament that was copied by a school of rabbis called the Masoretes between the 7th and 11th centuries AD. And it was a way of preserving a standardized Hebrew text for Jews to interpret and spread across the known world in their communities. The earliest known complete copy or codex that we have comes from the 11th century Leningrad Codex. But that codex is itself a product of a longer, older tradition of preserving and copying that Hebrew version since the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, it's considered today by many to be the authoritative Hebrew version of the Old Testament text that modern rabbinical Jews use and that Protestants consider their most important reference for their Old Testament canon. But as we will show in parts one and two of our Deuterocanon series, it was not necessarily the first and original Hebrew version of the Old Testament Bible, and it would be anachronistic and ahistorical to say it was. We have good evidence that before the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, that there were other competing Hebrew variants of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text just happens to be the lucky variant that was copied, preserved, and standardized by later post-Christian rabbinical Jews and the other variants due to the ravages of war, conflict, storage, and time did not stick around to this day. And we can confirm this because archaeologists in 1946 excavating a cave in Qumran discovered a gigantic cache of ancient Hebrew texts, and a lot of them were of Old Testament texts, and their Hebrew did not quite match up word for word with the Hebrew of the Masoretic text, showing that there were various textual traditions of the Old Testament in Hebrew long before the destruction of the second Jewish temple, which is all just a long way of saying that the Masoretic text is not the same as the original inspired Hebrew that is God-breathed, but is a version that does preserve a lot of that original inspired Hebrew, but it is one of some other competing Hebrew texts that were prevalent before the destruction of the temple, and those other competing texts need to be taken into account when we're deciding and reconstructing what was the original inspired Hebrew. But Nico Nico, you're saying, if we don't have those other variants preserved to this day, how can they inform our reconstruction of the original inspired Hebrew text if we don't actually have them to refer to? Well, not all is lost on these Hebrew variants. Like we said, there are those fragments that we discovered at Qumran, but these texts and their particular flavor and style and content are substantively preserved through ancient translations that were most likely made from them, the most popular and influential being the Greek Septuagint, which we'll talk about next. So listen up, because this is important. What is the Septuagint? We're going to refer to it again and again. The Septuagint is the name given to the textual family of a particular ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that were popular and in extensive use in the time of Christ and were frequently cited 
by the New Testament authors themselves, and it contained, often, their preferred versions of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Its name comes from the Latin title Septuaginta, meaning 70, a reference to the 72 Jewish elders who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek at the request of King Ptolemy of Philadelphus sometime between 285 BC and 247 BC for the benefit of Greek-speaking Jews in the diaspora. Remember, in that time, closer to the time of Christ, there weren't a lot of Jews that spoke Hebrew as their everyday language. It was kind of their liturgical language and their scholarly language, but most Jews living in the area that Christ lived and walked for hundreds of years before and during his life, they spoke either Aramaic or Greek. Now, the fact that the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, was so lopsidedly preferred by the New Testament writers when referring to Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, this is the source of why it has such preeminent authority among ancient Christians and Catholics today, even if, as a textual source, it is of less uniform, preserved quality as the Masoretic text. Now, what do I mean by it is less uniformly preserved in its quality as the Masoretic text? That means that while the various codices of the Septuagint are generally similar, each copy is not as meticulously identical to each other like the ancient Masoretic Hebrew copies. So the Septuagint has enough variance to cause issues when translating from it. And people like St. Jerome learned this the hard way when he was translating the Vulgate. Issues like this can make the Septuagint less useful as the Masoretic text in figuring out what was the original Hebrew text of an obscure Bible passage. That said, for a long time, it was assumed by biblical scholars that the Greek Septuagint was just a loosely translated, somewhat inaccurate, and perhaps even corrupted translation of the Masoretic text's pure original Hebrew. But, like I said, since that recent biblical scholarship of uncovering those fragments from older and different Hebrew versions of the scriptures at the caves in Qumran, the scholarly consensus seems to be that the Septuagint is a translation of a different and or older Hebrew source text that predates the Masoretic text sources, or at least is translated from a Hebrew source text that existed at a comparable length of time before the destruction of the Second Temple. So even if it's less uniform, the Septuagint remains a valuable collection of Greek translations of possible Hebrew versions of the Old Testament that we no longer have, and so we cannot simply just disregard it entirely. Regardless, for the purposes of this discussion, it's important to keep in mind that the Septuagint notably preserves authoritative Greek translations, or in some cases, the original Greek, of the seven deuterocanonical books in its collection of Old Testament scripture. Let me emphasize that again. Where the Masoretic text does not have the seven deuterocanonical books in its corpus, the Septuagint does preserve those seven deuterocanonical books in its collection. Okay, enough terminology. Let's talk about these seven deuterocanonical books. I want to start with the book of Judith. 
It's an interesting book because it's kind of an allegorical story, something of an extended theological parable, or even, by some accounts, the first historical novel. It follows a Jewish widow named Judith, who uses her beauty and cleverness to trick and defeat an Assyrian general and save Jerusalem from destruction. The literary style and details of the story suggest that it is symbolic and non-historic in nature, which, if it's considered inspired scripture, would put it closer to a wisdom book like Song of Songs or Job and other books like that in the Bible. It's unclear if it was originally written in Hebrew or Greek, because the only surviving copies we have of it come from the Greek Septuagint translation. It is not in the Masoretic Hebrew text. Next book, The Book of Tobit. This is another narrative story, uh, but it's possibly parabolic in nature, kind of like Judith, but with a little more historical grounding. The story is set in the 8th century BC, but it was probably written between 225 to 170 BC. The book follows two Israelite families, one in Nineveh and the other in Ekbaktana. These families are afflicted for different reasons, and the story ends with a marriage. So it's kind of like a comedy. I'm skipping the cool parts with a helpful archangel Raphael and a demon named Asmodeus, but the book is significant in that it has some theological contributions to make to doctrines concerning the intercession of angels, piety, almsgiving, tithing, and reverence for the dead. Tobit is, again, not found in the Masoretic Hebrew text, but it is in the ancient Septuagint Greek translation. Most English translations of the book are based on two complete ancient Greek translations we have of it, the longer version, Sinaiticus, and the shorter two, Vaticanus and Alexandrinus versions. Contrary to what was believed for so long, this book very well might not have been written originally in Greek, but rather written in Hebrew or Aramaic, because in the archaeological finds in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran found fragments of this text in Hebrew and Aramaic. Modern translations of Tobit from the complete ancient Greek translations favor translating the longer Sinaiticus Greek text, because that longer Greek text more closely matches those Hebrew and Aramaic fragments that archaeologists discovered. Alright, on to the next book. Let's talk about the Book of Wisdom, or alternately called the Wisdom of Solomon, which just means that it's part of the Solomonic wisdom tradition. This is a book that is similar to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It was definitely originally written in Greek, and likely composed by an unknown Jewish author in Alexandria, Egypt. It is one of the youngest books of the Deuterocanon, being written only about the mid-first century before the coming of Christ. It treats of two major themes, wisdom in relation to mankind as the perfection of God's gift to humans, and wisdom as coexisting eternally with God. This book is rich with Jesus' prophecy and theology about Christ's relationship with the Father, and the New Testament writers are deeply influenced by its teachings and revelations about Jesus Christ. So we'll go in depth about these New Testament connections in part three of our series. All right, on to the next book. Let's talk about the book of Sirach, also called Ben Sirah, or the wisdom of Yeshua Ben Sirah, or even Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. 
This is another text written in the wisdom tradition of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Book of Wisdom. It's the longest wisdom book from antiquity period to survive, and it's chock full of sacred wisdom and sayings, closer to the format of Proverbs. Its theology especially influenced the Apostle John's intro to the Gospel of John. Again, we'll discuss more of this in depth in part three of the series. Now, the book of Sirach was originally written in Hebrew, but for the longest time, we only had the Greek translation of it by the original author's grandson preserved in the Septuagint. However, again, since the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, we now have various fragments of the original Hebrew from six different manuscripts to confirm that that original Hebrew copy did exist. Now moving on to the book of Baruch. This is a book named after and thought to be authored by Baruch ben Neriah, the scribe of Jeremiah the prophet. Or at least, it contains spiritual content from Baruch that is preserved through an unknown author who might have directly authored the text much later in the tradition of Jeremiah's disciples. The book is mostly a reflection on the circumstances of Jewish exiles in Babylon and has an extended discussion of wisdom. It's not in the Hebrew Masoretic text. All of the earliest known copies of Baruch are in the Greek Septuagint, but the linguistic features of the first three chapters suggest it is a translation from a Semitic language like Aramaic or Hebrew. Now on to the book of Maccabees. There are two of these books, and they cover roughly the same period of Jewish history from 170 BC to 124 BC, and they both really set up the political situation in the time of Christ very well. They cover the epic story of the resistance to Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his restriction of Jewish practices. It shows the resistance against his regime by Mattathias of the Hasmonean family and his five sons. One of those sons, Judas Maccabeus, who gives his name to the two books, takes over the revolt at some point and leads the Jewish people to victory. And... His brother, Simon, is named high priest by all the Jewish people at the end, and this inaugurates the Hasmonean dynasty's rule of Jerusalem through the office of high priest. Fun fact, these books cover the story that the holiday of Hanukkah seeks to commemorate. The first book of Maccabees was originally written in Hebrew, but again, a complete Hebrew version has been lost, and it only survives in the Septuagint Greek translation in its completion. 1st Maccabees is written in a reliable, accurate, and narrowly historical narrative of this period. 2nd Maccabees was written originally in Greek between 150 and 120 BC by an unknown diaspora Jew in Hellenistic Egypt. It is a more emotionally engrossing presentation of the same events from 1st Maccabees, and it is a lot more thematically spiritual, containing a lot of contributions to the theological doctrines of the resurrection of the dead and support for prayer for the dead. This book had a lot of particular sticking points for Martin Luther during the Reformation, so it's definitely a battleground in this debate and is worth learning a lot more about. And the last parts of the Deuterocanon Canon are not complete books, but they're rather portions of Daniel and Esther that aren't in Protestant and modern Jewish Bibles. These are, in Daniel, the section that concerns the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three holy children, the story in Daniel of Susanna and the elders and Bel and the dragon, 
And lastly, the deuterocanonical portions of Esther include a passage about the fulfillment of Mordecai's dream, a passage about the interpretation of Mordecai's dream, a passage about the conspiracy of the two eunuchs, a passage about the letter of Amen and the prayer of Mordecai to the Jews, the prayer of Esther, a passage about Esther coming into the king's presence, and the letter of King Artaxerxes. Finally, I want to leave you all with some critical questions to keep in mind as we roll through this debate. 1. Does the historical and biblical evidence support the idea that the Jews always had a uniform canon of scripture before, during, and after the time of Christ? 2. Should Christians rely on what later post-Christian rabbinical Jews say about their canon to form our Christian Old Testament canon? And 3. If the Bible is our only rule of faith, but it doesn't give us any guidance about how to identify the books of the Bible, how are we going to create principles to determine which books are scripture and which are not without inventing standards out of thin air that have no basis in the Bible and so are therefore not infallible and cannot bind one's conscience? All right, y'all, I hope I've gotten you interested, curious, questioning this very engrossing and deep topic. We'll see you next week. God bless you. You're in our prayers.